Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. So while I was away, Treasury yields climbed. They had their biggest five-day sell-off since November, since right after the U.S. election. And to bring in someone who can tell us, you know, whether this is the beginning of a more protracted bond market route or whether this is just a hiccup in an otherwise low-yield environment, we have Jim Bianco, who I am so pleased to speak with. Jim Bianco is president of Bianco Research, which is based in Chicago. Jim, what is going on here? You know, is this just, uh, you know, rates kind of normalized? in a a little bit more of a choppy fashion that they have been? Or is this the beginning of something bigger? It could be the beginning of something bigger, but I don't think so. Let's talk about what happened June 27th, uh, which was not that long ago, uh, just two weeks ago. The 10-year yield was at 211. And the next day, there was um, a bunch of central bankers that spoke, uh, Mark Kearney of the uh, Bank of England and Mario Draghi of the European Central Bank. And they hinted that even they might be looking at a period of when their central bank stimulus of bond buying might end. Uh, Remember now that all bonds in the world, developed market uh, government bonds in the world, one-third of them are now owned by central banks. So if all the Fed has already stopped buying, if the ECB is going to stop buying, and the Bank of England is going to stop buying, the bond market responded accordingly by seeing a rise in yields a lot. Now, we've seen the 10-year yield go up, but European yields have gone up a lot more. The uh, 10-year German Bund is at an 18-month high uh, on that news. So I think that's been the catalyst for it. The problem is that they're assuming, they being central banks, are assuming that inflation is going to kick back up. If it does, then all their hawkish talk about raising rates is probably justified. If it doesn't, and these uh, and inflation stays low, and for the last several years that has always been the thing, inflation confounds by being too much lower than everybody thinks, if it stays there, then they might be over-tightening, and they could be seriously impacting the economy in a negative way. Which way do you fall on this? I think that they're going too far. I think that inflation is not going to pick up to the degree that central banks say it's going to pick up. We did a study a couple of weeks ago where we looked at uh, Fed speech, and usually when inflation surprises them, they start using the words models and forecasts a lot, meaning that, oh, pay no attention to us being wrong now. The future, according to our model and forecast, says we'll be right. They've used the words model and forecast more than they have at any point in the last eight years. So they're really betting that they're going to see a rise of inflation. And I just don't see it right now. And if they intend on reducing the balance sheet, at least the Federal Reserve, raising rates more, and we were to get this kind of pullback from the ECB and the Bank of England, it could be very problematic for the economies because you could wind up tightening to the point where it actually hurts the economy, something we haven't seen yet so far. I'm wondering, Jim, what's your take on whether this bond market sell-off happened on thin volume and was simply a result from a summer market where a lot of people were out of the office versus uh, people were positioned for this and were waiting for this and, 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 and have been so the market has gotten so one-sided that it can readjust quickly and more violently. Let me make it just a, an anecdote for you about the thin volume. Um, J.P. Morgan has reported now that you, among their 
high institutional clients that they have mobile apps for them to trade, and they have now done uh, trades in excess of a billion dollars with somebody on their phone. So all those traders that are summering in the Hamptons over the 4th of July weekend, they're not in the office, they've got a phone. They've got their two buttons away from doing a trade, and that's exactly what they have been doing. And so I don't buy the argument that there's this thing called thin summer volume uh, as far as where the, where the markets go. As far as the positioning goes in the marketplace, I think it's rather neutral. We look at things like the Commitment of Traders Report, which is a breakdown of open interest, and we see that the 10-year, uh, the speculators in the 10-year uh, contract are very, very long, and that's supposed to be bearish. But then we've got the opposite in the euro dollar, and when you add them all up, they're kind of in a middling kind of range. So I don't see... Uh, positioning as being anywhere extreme right now, which suggests that this, this rise in rates might have a little bit more to run, but not much more, because if the Fed's going to continue to raise rates without inflation, I think the market's going to start worrying that they're going to hurt the economy, and that could be very supportive for interest rates. At what point do you think, for let's say on the 10-year, what yields do you think are going to be attractive enough to bring people in buying in bulk? I think 240 would do it. Uh, we're only a couple of basis points away from that right now. Uh, I think that if you see a 2.4x fill in the blank after that, I think that people will start getting interested in the bond market. Jim, you know when I when I always speak with you or hear hear your voice uh, or read things that you write, I always think, okay, Jim is in Chicago, so he's kind of the steady Eddie in all this. You know, he kind of sees it from a perspective that many people on the coast and so on may not be able to see. And then I, of course, thought, but Chicago is in Illinois. And you, you've got a problem. I'm wondering if you could talk about just the pensions uh, uh, and w these problems with uh, uh, the budgets, in, in particularly in Illinois, and what you think the effects of that uh, are going to be in the economy. Illinois is on the road to ruin. How about that? Um, and unfortunately, I'll say that we're just further along on that road than everybody else. They all seem to be on it. Um, real brief, here's Illinois' problem. They passed the new constitution in 1970. Section 5 of the new constitution says you cannot change a pension plan or any retirement plan that is done by the state, city, or any municipal workers. They've tried to amend, or I'm sorry, they've tried to change the plans. The courts have struck it down because the, the constitution says you can't change them. So we've got this giant pension problem that cannot be changed short of a constitutional amendment. I won't go through the, uh, the, the mechanics of that, but let's just say that a constitutional amendment in Illinois is all but impossible. So that's the first problem that Illinois has. The second problem that Illinois has then at that point is that they have been raising taxes to try and meet this pension problem. They've been driving people out of the state. The state of Illinois has the largest exodus of people in the country. The city of Chicago has the largest exodus of any major city of people in the country. We've just raised the taxes again. The Illinois Policy Institute says that, congratulations, Illinois, you've got the highest tax rate in the country, now all-in tax rate in the country. That's going to drive more people out of the state. That's going to lower the number of people that pay taxes. That's what I mean by Illinois is on a road to ruin. Now, what fixes this? Well, when the Illinois voters decide what they want to be, do they, do they want to be a quasi-socialist state and continue to just raise taxes and raise taxes, and they don't care if they drive everybody out? Or do they want to correct this by electing politicians that will pass a constitutional amendment to start, uh, start fixing this problem? 
the Illinois voters haven't decided yet, and that's why we will remain on the road to ruin until they do decide what they want to do. Thank I hate you. To very, be so pessimistic. No, but I, Jim Bianco. I mean, you know, as they say, tell us how you really feel. No, but Jim Bianco, you're you're highlighting so many very pertinent uh, issues, and we want to thank you for doing so. Uh, Jim Bianco is the president and the founder of Bianco Research, and yes, he is based in Chicago. There's a holiday coming up, Lisa Abramowitz. It's only happening online, though. It's oh, happening yeah? in the Amazon world, and it's called Amazon Prime Day. And this apparently is a moment in Internet experience that people have waited for all year. But we've got someone who has to do this for a living. Jatendra Warrell, he is our global Internet and consumer electronics analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Jatendra, thank you very much for making time for us. And tell us, are, are, have you got the countdown clock or something to this uh, <laughs> uh, retail experience? Tell, tell people who are not familiar with it or whose eyes are rolling into the back right. of their head what this right. is all about. So basically, this is a third year that Amazon's doing this. Uh, essentially, what they want to do is for all their Prime members make uh, you know products available at deep discounts, so that you know more people are aware of this Prime membership service and they attract more Prime members you know longer term. Now, what we have seen last three year, two years basically, every time they have a Prime Day one, they they always have like a. Uh, uh, you know, uh, sales exceeding sort of expectations on the Prime Day, which reflects in the 3Q guidance being higher than expectations, but also a surge in Prime memberships. So what you can expect here is deals, more Prime members, and, um, uh, you know, them selling more Echo devices to you this year. Jitendra, how big are the discounts and who takes the cut in profits? Does Amazon pass on the cut in profits to the suppliers, the stores that supply uh, the mm -hmm. goods, or is it just them taking the hit and taking the loss? See, the goal here is not just chasing sales and profitability on this day. The goal here is to broadcast the brand globally, right? So attracting more prime members. So it's it's uh, less to do with profits and more to do with just... It's an acquisition oh, I, I, cost. No, I understand right. that. I understand that. But I'm wondering if they discount things heavily, right? How does that, you know, are they basically taking a loss with the amount that they're discounting it? Or are they just, they're discounting it a little bit and, and they're on, still... On certain categories, on certain categories, that would be true. But if you actually look at... Uh, you know, the stuff that they sell the most or, or uh, hope to sell the most is Amazon's own products, uh, which obviously, you know, they're taking a loss on it as it is. Uh, so, you know, it's safe to assume that they would be taking a loss on that. But uh, the goal here is more penetration of, you know, these devices like Amazon Echo and henceforth, the more uh, tuned customers are to the whole Amazon ecosystem. So if I uh, said to the Alexa or the Echo uh, machine in, in the living room, Tell me the dollar amount of sales that Amazon does on these days. Uh, what would the response be? Uh, they don't disclose this number. Probably. What do you think it is? That's, what kind of sales numbers are we talking about? So uh, right now we uh, will be probably approaching a billion dollars uh, in GMV because, you know, A, they have 30 hours this year versus 24. Uh, B, they have more Prime members. How did they, the get, how did they squeeze those hours? Who did they call to get those extra hours? <laughs> 
Well, they also expanded the number of countries over here, and they want to make sure that you know all these uh, deals attract as many Prime and Echo customers right. as possible. So, uh, but what's interesting is with the Echo devices, like you have uh, exclusive deals on them as well, and deep discounts on the Echo product as well. So Amazon clearly wants you know more and more people to buy these Echo devices and rely more on it, so that you know they stay away from shopping elsewhere. Why don't all retailers do this, have their own holiday, not Black Friday, but have their own holiday that they managed to create manufacture. I mean, Hallmark basically did that for like Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, right? right, right so, right. I mean, why why don't we see more of this? It's, it's interesting because, you know, what we have seen over the last three years, it's been reactionary uh, stances from other players. So Walmart had something similar last year uh, in response to Prime. Uh, but like this year, they are not doing it. But uh, Why, why but, aren't they doing it? Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of the reasons is probably their discounts are more flexible throughout the year versus Amazon. It's, it's a little bit more rigid uh, on that stance. And also, they don't have members. You know, for Prime members, it's for Prime, mem- Prime, mem- Prime Day. Is Prime members only, so they don't have this sort of membership loyalty uh, program going on across the board, and I think that's something that um, they uh, couldn't do. They're buying an annual annuity stream, and whatever they were <laughs> right, I mean, and they just have to figure yeah. out a way to finance what what they have. So the stock is up one and a quarter uh, percent right now. Uh, Amazon shares uh, trading. Just under $1,000 a share, $995 a share for, for Amazon. Uh, so who, uh, who takes the hit from all this? Uh, Walmart? Uh, well, Walmart, interestingly, didn't do it this year, like, uh, you know, have a reactionary sort of response, but uh, not Walmart as much, but like yeah, you, you could see the other stores, uh, you know, sort of uh, do take a hit from traffic being diverted away from them. But it's not about a hit on one day. It's about a hit on like what it means for the next year, you know. So, like I said, they have 22 million more Prime members now uh, coming into Prime Day versus it was last year. So, the more people are are uh, attuned to this ecosystem, more likely they're going to stick to it. It's like a cable company, right? They've got 22 million more people paying $99 a year. Absolutely. I believe and, and it's $99. Absolutely. But but what's interesting is that the $99, I mean, it doesn't really cover your free shipping and all the goods you get out of it. So what Amazon wants to do is essentially rely more on third-party sellers uh, through their fulfillment by Amazon program uh, to sell it to Prime members. So yeah. that's how they try to recuperate, uh, you know, uh, all the costs uh, that or some of the costs, at least for now, to, um, to give you the free shipping and right. all these services. Jitendra Waral, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to let you go and uh, get started to uh, get up your wish list for Amazon Prime. Uh, Jitendra is our global internet and consumer electronics analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from San Francisco. Well, there is a market that isn't covered very much, but is vast and is of great importance to really the heart of the U.S. economy, and that is uh, middle market lending. I want to bring in Andy Stoyerman. He is head of middle market lending and head of late stage lending for Gallup Capital with $20 billion under management and based in Chicago. Um Andy, I want to talk about just the state of the market right now, because in the first half of 2017, uh, broadly syndicated loans saw an unprecedented amount of issuance. And a lot of this was repricing people try or companies trying to get uh, lower rates on their loans. Right now, we're starting to see some softness in the broader 
bigger loan market. What about the middle market? The middle market always is immune to what's going on in the syndicated market. We do say if they have a flu, we get a cold, but middle market's more relationship blending. And our clients really don't have a choice. They don't really have a syndicated option. They don't have a non-syndicated option. So middle market has some spread compression when the large market has spread compression, which is happening now. But we're more immune and we tend to be more relationship lending. So clients tend to pick us and work with us even when market conditions change. What kind of, how much higher are the rates on these loans, say, on average than on uh, broadly syndicated loans? They could be anywhere from about 100 to 125 basis points. And if you're one of the lead arrangers, you get to keep most of the upfront fees. We're in a syndicated market. The investment bank keeps the upfront fees and the retail market takes a very low OID. So we actually get a premium in our spread because we're the underwriter and holder. I want you to just use, if you can, the, um, here's the image. The image is you have a pet and you have to go and you need to, let's say, have it cared for. And you get the bill and you just are in shock, but you pay it. Can you tell us about that and a loan that you put together and how that kind of exemplifies not only your role, Mm -hmm. but specifically the kinds of businesses and the people involved in the businesses, the the owners, the operators? Sure. Golub Capital works with middle market companies. In the United States, middle market companies really are the growth engine. That's where most changes happen because larger companies are kind of too bureaucratic. We do like the pet space. We found over time that people actually like their pets sometimes more than their children and will feed their pets better food than they feed their children. So it's actually a pretty recession resistant element. So we, we've worked well in That's the veterinary. That's sad. I'm sorry, but I know, carry I know. on. It, it's proven to be true. We've, we've, we could see it. I just want you to get to pet <laughs> vet care. Pet, so, so people bring veterinary care is, is, is been recession resistant. We have data going back 15 years when we've done our first veterinarians have two issues, right? They have issues of scale because they need to kind of grow their business and they have generational change issues, which is how do I monetize what I've created? So the private equity market has been great at creating these super companies where they consolidate all the operations, get more efficient. So sometimes pricing goes down, better care, referral sources, but also the owners of these businesses actually get to cash out and change their generational wealth. So our company we did was called PetVet. PetVet's one of the larger consolidators. And this is an example how we did a middle market deal and didn't go syndicated. $700 million facility in prior years would have been done the larger syndicated loan market. Just to be just this was this headquartered in in um, uh, Connecticut. Headquartered in Connecticut, right? But Westport. Operate, but their operations are national and right. they're building clusters nationally. And they're owned by a by, pension plan. By a pension plan and other lenders like you know, like ourselves. Well, I want to pick up on the idea that a pension plan mm-hmm. owns this company, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. This I thought was interesting, and this is a new development where you're seeing an increasing number of pensions invest directly in smaller companies in order to capture those higher mm-hmm. yields, which you were saying were uh, north of, of 1% uh, percentage point higher than more broadly syndicated loans. Um, how much are you seeing this as a trend, and is it good or is it bad? So, so we've seen pension plans in two places. One, we've seen them as buyers of, of businesses where they've decided not to invest in private equity funds and pay the carry and the promote to private equity funds, and they build their own teams. And then we've seen them as direct, direct lenders where they have huge obligations, and they see the direct loans that we're making and giving to our investors, and they'd like to participate, and some of them have the scale to get their teams together. So there are 
It's a delicate balance in into conflict. Wait, wait. When you say scale to get their teams together, does that mean that they are hiring people who are specialists in direct lending to go out on behalf of them and source opportunities? Or does this mean that uh, they're getting sort of investment uh, theses together in order to invest? No, they're doing both. They actually have full teams. They're marketing to the private equity universe as if they were Gallup Capital. So they're out there using their balance sheet, using their pension plan and going out and sourcing loans on their own. Does this make it difficult for you? You know, there it does make it more difficult, but there is a scale. There, there is tenure. So Gallup Capital has been in business for 20 years. You, it takes a long time to queue in this business. One of the things that people don't talk about is you have to provide companies with revolvers or lines of credit. Having that operation is very time consuming, expensive, and it's a big organization. They tend to do more of the junior capital pension plans, second lien, high yield bonds, and tend to buy into our loans probably more than than arrange and lead themselves because of that difficulty. Real real quick, which pension plans have the biggest teams devoted to direct lending? Um, Ontario Teachers was. There's a, there's a group called PSP. There are, there are pension plans all over the United States. They're all doing it. There are family offices that are doing it too, high net worth individuals and family offices. So the Canadian market has been one of the largest, if you look at all the Canadian pension plans, they've been the most aggressive, you know, con- really in our market. That is amazing. They're, they really, so they're investing in the United States to fund their future liabilities for their retirees. Yes. Not our own pension plans. Some invest through us. Well, what a trend. All right, well done. Thanks very much for being here, illuminating an interesting topic. Andy Steuerman, he is the head of middle market lending and the head of late stage lending. He does it all at Golub Capital, $20 billion under management, based in Chicago. This is Bloomberg. Well, in the past week alone, the biggest emerging markets ETF, uh, debt ETF, I should say, which trades into the ticker EMB, has lost about one, almost $1 billion of assets through withdrawals. And this comes after uh, many, many weeks of consecutive and uh, record inflows. Here to help us understand whether this is the beginning of some kind of bigger route within emerging markets debt is Damien Sassauer. He's our fixed income strategist focused on emerging markets for Bloomberg. Intelligence, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Damien, thank you so much for joining us. So we have seen this weakness, uh, which is a little bit surprising, simply because there were so many big investors who were saying that right now emerging markets debt is in better shape simply because these economies are doing better. And even a bit of a, of a, of a benchmark rate increase in the U.S. won't really shake it. What's behind the latest weakness and can it continue? Well, I think the latest weakness, uh, as we were discussing, it's, it's, it's been macro factors, right? I think 60% of spread movement over the better part of the past two years in emerging market debt is related to oil, U.S. Uh, yields, and China, China consumption. So, you know, that explains the bulk of it. I mean, we just hiked on June 14th. And since that point, the... Uh, uh, Meaning that the Federal Reserve raised interest rates yes. again on uh, in, in June. And since then, uh, we have seen this weakness. Precisely. We, were, we are uh, the uh, Bloomberg Barclays Emerging Market Hard Currency Aggregate Benchmark Index is down 1.05 percent since the date of the uh, the Fed rate hike. So, so yeah, look, I mean, it's still up 5.2 percent year to date. I mean, it rose nine percent last year. So maybe uh, you know 
call it what you will, you know, um, now that, um, you know, maybe profit taking, maybe, you know, you're just seeing people, you know, the markets are maybe a little bit overextended, et cetera. But, but look, fundamentally, and this is what we look at, I think there's something bigger going on beneath the surface, right? We've got EM credit quality degradation, and we have tighter spread return of leverage, meaning the spread premia that creditors require uh, per unit of gross leverage has compressed by 13.4% year to date. So you're just wait, not wait, getting- Wait, wait, just to make that, just to translate. Well, yeah, what yeah. does so that in other mean? Words, <laughs> so in other words- Is that a left if, turn or a right turn? So investors are basically getting much less compensation Correct. for extra debt that emerging markets companies are building up relative to their income. In other words, they're becoming more levered and people are accepting less, uh, less in income- in that's exactly right. You, uh, you you said it perfectly. So so, um, and it's not uniform, right? I mean, the level of leverage that is going up in emerging market, it, it's not going up across the board. It's going up across most sectors. Although you know, our analysis finds that mining and utility issuers leverage is actually uh, declining, um, and it's not going up across all regions. In fact, um, well, in the Asia Pacific region, it's gone up quite considerably, but in Central and Eastern Europe, leverage is actually declining. So, you know, it's 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 about these pockets, you know, these idiosyncratic regions and countries and sectors, and 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 that kind of lends you to where you know the opportunities are, and quite frankly, where the risks are. Let me just try to put this into a picture for myself, uh, Damien, because if you were uh, brave enough after the November presidential election to go in and buy EMB, which is, as we're describing, the ETF that is the proxy for how people feel about emerging market debt. If you were lucky enough to do that, you would be getting in at around 106. And I'm just going to tell you something about June. This is the beginning of June. Emerging debt ETFs saw the largest weekly inflows in more than four years, adding $1.4 billion. So that was the beginning of last month. So maybe when you're a smart investor and you read that and you say, oh, largest weekly inflow in more than four years, yeah. I'm getting out. I got in at 106 and now I can get out at uh, at 116. Great. Thank you. I'll buy it back when it goes to 103 or and, 113. And, and, and- and Pim, let me just expand on that. $13 billion has found its way into emerging market debt ETFs in 2017, and that's equal to 30% of EM debt ETF assets under management. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. If you well, just that, think either, about- that either speaks to the marketing, the sales, or the actual underlying... Because well, how do you even know what's in this thing? I mean, well, you, do most people know what's in it? Well, yeah, it's transparent. No, well, no, over 70% of the $34 billion in the five largest emerging market debt ETFs are U.S. dollar bonds, right? They're hard currency emerging market... Um, yeah, but I got... For here, Russia is the largest holding in EMB. Right, you got a you got a Russia uh, twenty thirty bond, well, Uruguay, Poland, Peru. It's interesting how so much of this is also connected to politics. Because I was looking at this list that you have in the story, which gives a really detailed uh, reckoning for each individual country. Why don't you just share some highlights with uh, of that? Well, I mean, like Mexico, Turkey, and so on. Well, I, you know, Mexico is an interesting one. I mean, let's start with Russia, right? I mean, the thing with Russia is, I think you know, people are looking at Russia and they look at emerging markets and what do you look at? You look at growth, you look at effectively what is the forward earnings potential of the country itself. And sometimes you ignore the the basic fundamentals. Leverage in Russia is low relative to just about any country on the planet, predominantly because it's been sanctioned by the US and the EU. And so it hasn't been able to tap 
the uh, international capital markets for some time. I mean, they have, but just not not the way you would you would have you would have thought. And you know, so yeah, I mean, they actually have low leverage, but on a forward basis, just extrapolating that out. Their growth potential is not nearly what it is or what it once was, given the sanctions and given what's going on with geopolitical risk in Russia. Right. So, you know, and and let's compare that to Mexico. Our analysis looking at spread per turn finds that Mexico um, corporates and quasi sovereign issuers are actually being valued well below what their credit rating, their triple B credit rating now says they're actually being valued as a double B. So, yeah. That's great information. Go long, Mexico. Watch out if you're in Russia. Thanks very much. Damien Sassauer, fixed income strategist, Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.